Welcome to season six of the RAG podcast. Now, for those of you who don't know, the RAG stands for Recruitment Agency Growth. And this show has been around since early 2019. And every week, we are obsessed with finding out how the world's most successful and innovative recruitment agencies and their founders have got to where they are today. In season six, alongside the founder's story and the inside information of that business, I also want to focus on the reality of today's economy. There is so much noise about this inevitable recession that we find ourselves in right now. And where it's going to go, is it really having an impact on the recruitment sector? Are they seeing any change in job flow? Are they seeing any change in candidate control or activity? What is going on? I want to find out. So every single week, I want to forget the propaganda, forget the noise. I'm going to speak to a real life recruitment owner and find out what is going on in their business. I will bring it to you every single Wednesday from 12 o'clock across multiple platforms. Stay tuned. Welcome back to another episode of the RAG Podcast. On this week's episode, I am excited to be joined by Richard Wright. Richard is the CEO of a business called Acre. Acre are a specialist recruitment consultancy focusing on sustainability and everything to do with sustainability, which includes climate change, social issues, and many more. Now, Richard has got a long, long, long history in the recruitment sector. Um, originally worked for one of the biggest organizations in the world and then start joined as a partner and bought into another business. I think MWA um, was the organization in the finance and accounting space. Um, Richard was at the helm of that business for a long time and then eventually sold the business to Randstad. So went through an exit. He did stay in the company um, for, I think it was three years post acquisition. Um, he then had some time out, was unemployed and he's uh, in his mid forties. Um, and then he came into Acre when they were a 10 person business. They've got now well over a hundred staff, four international locations. Um, and Richard's a super, super knowledgeable guy. What I love about Richard, he said, Right now, he's enjoying his career more than he ever has before. So at the age of, I think, mid-50s, he's enjoying his recruitment career more than he ever has before. And he got into recruitment pretty much straight out of studying. I mean, he did become an accountant, and then he he, he quit that to be a recruiter. So um, who'd have thought it? You, you could still love this game in your 50s and, and perhaps love it even more than you do now. Um, you're going to love this episode. Rich is not the founder, but he has scaled and exited organizations. He comes in at a founder level. Um, super knowledgeable, super um, inspiring, and uh, really nice guy. Just a really, really nice guy. I recorded this episode earlier this week, and uh, I know having uh, watched it back, you're going to absolutely love it. So without further ado, Richard, welcome to the RAG podcast. Thank you, Sean. Pleasure to have you on. It took us, uh, took us a bit of time today. We've had some technical issues. I've never had as many technical issues in one call as I have with you, but we got here, Richard. Thank you very much. We made a couple, it. Of do- couple of dogs play their part as well. A couple of dogs, got always got dogs. There could be some issues and you never know. They might. If the Amazon guy knocks on my door, there's going to be issues throughout the day. Um, but Richard, I've done you an intro there, but I can never do it justice, right? So okay. for the listener who doesn't know you, give us the bird's eye view of you and the business you, you work with right now. The overview of the numbers and the locations and what you do, et cetera. So Richard Wright, thanks, Sean. My name is Richard Wright. I'm in my mid-50s. I'm the chief exec of a business called Acre. Uh, and Acre is, I think, the global leader in role types relating to all things covering sustainability, 
climate change and the, and the societal issues that uh, the world meets right now. We would uh, like to talk about our growth, but right now we have 140 staff spread over four locations. The business is based out of London, but we have an office in New York, Amsterdam, and most recently in Singapore. Amazing. Amazing. And you, if we go back, you, I, I saw you, is it Michael Page? that where you started your career in recruitment? Yeah. Yeah. So I tell you the story. Yeah, the nineteen eighty six. How, how did that happen? <laughs> well, um, once I'd left Sheffield, we'd be talking about Sheffield this morning as well. I tried to uh, become an accountant for a year, wow. which wasn't fun. So I did the classic thing of, at the time, got a magazine, uh, and on the back page of this magazine was this, were these jobs being advertised by this business called Michael Page. I had, I didn't have a clue what that was all about and who Michael Page were, but I applied probably by post in a post box. Um, and I was contacted uh, and realized that they then set us so I've been doing accounting for about a year for a company called Johnson Matthey in Hertfordshire. Mm -hmm. And then I was going off for different job interviews to do different roles as an accountant. And I've realized actually it wasn't Johnson Matthey's fault. It was the functions fault. I just didn't get excited. So during this time, I was getting to know the people at Michael Page. Michael Page was 10 years old then. It was a it was growing like crazy some fantastic people there some of those people that i met in those first few years are my lifelong friends um uh, because they persuaded me to go into recruitment um and that's what happened and i really disappointed my parents by uh doing this job is there a challenge there if you if you go and get degree educated in accountancy you go get a job in accountancy it's quite you know it's quite a proud thing for parents i imagine and you know i'm an accountant and then you go i'm um, throwing it all away to, to work in a job where I don't need any of that stuff. I could have done it without it. I think I think to this day, they struggle telling their friends what I do for a living. <laughs> um, uh, and then a, about a year later, uh, I then turned up at home in a brand new Golf GTI company car, which, you know, why why are they giving someone like you a car like that? I'm thinking, well, that's how, that's the world I'm in. It was, uh, I'm very grateful to to have been part of that Michael Page world at the time. I think they, they were going through some interesting breaking ground kind of uh, initiatives, both in the UK and elsewhere. It taught me some discipline that I use today. Um, and, you know, without sounding too corny, Sean, I definitely found my, my niche. About a year after I started there, I went to a reunion at my school. I grew up in um, Cambridge um, and my whoever was my kind of mentor in my upper six said to me what i was doing and she said why richard why did you ever consider accountancy but it was peer pressure sean to your point yeah, 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 yeah. because she said something like oh, richard you you could sell a fridge to an eskimo so you, you definitely belong in a in a commercial world and so i said that's fine why weren't people telling me this yeah. so, <laughs> because there was there was definitely that peer pressure around uh doing the accounting thing or something similar to that yeah it's crazy that i i I wouldn't say I had any peer pressure and I, I didn't get one of those academic degrees, right? But I also don't think anyone spotted the, the entrepreneurial sales skills I had. I don't think it was well, something that was encouraged when I, I wish someone had. because I, I, I did have them, by the way. You know, I used to buy and sell old bikes when I was 14. I then started buying and sell older uh, record players. I couldn't wait to um, get out and earn some money in the local supermarket or whatever it was. So I was yeah. always chasing that goal. But I didn't really apply that to how my career was going to pan out. Sales um, is not something that I don't know. This is not the point of the show, but 
it really isn't something that is promoted at schools, is it? It's as a, as a genuine career path. Whether and it, I, I spoke to someone yesterday about how in the US they really do see it as a as an established career path. Being a salesman or being a recruiter, recruiting as they call it, is very very well regarded. Whereas over here, sales is a bit of a dirty word still. Well, I, I see the role of a recruiter varying quite a lot across our regions. You know, in it's highly regarded in the Netherlands, for example. I'm not sure about the US, if I'm honest with you. Um, and here, as we know, and we'll talk about this, it, that, that title or that profession covers a whole spectrum of different types of operation and cultures and, and all the rest of it. But it all carries the word recruitment business, right? Um, and I, I love interviewing people to work for us, maybe who are not in recruitment, when I'm asking them about their background. And I start talking to them about this very subject, short about how we're a sales business and they don't realize that they're a salesperson but you know they may well be i don't know organizing and setting up a football club in their community and persuading people to join in or they did something at college or they're doing things kind of outside of their working life which tell me all i need to know about their desire to make things happen and to persuade people to join and also to be followed you know they're, they're leaders so that's selling right so yeah 100 yeah. so how did your career as a, as a consultant and leader you're eight, over eight years there yeah did you go quickly into the sort of management function and go through that route or? I, I loved it I could probably boast somebody might ring me up and tell me I was wrong but I think I was their youngest ever manager so I, at the time to really take the listeners back the M25 was just being opened and so there was a there was an obvious geographic thing to have a orbital network of offices yeah, so Michael Page were obviously big in London and they had a, a large uh, presence in the Thames Valley out of Windsor. And I'd been put into the uh, what they call the Northern Home Counties team in um, in St Albans as part of that expansion. And then I did a bit of marketing recruitment and then the opportunity came up to uh, run the office in Leatherhead. I don't know if you've ever been to Leatherhead, but no, I know so, of it. Yes, it's, it probably hasn't fulfilled its M25 potential, but people like SA were moving in there. Subsequently, that business is now based out of Guildford, which is a more more logical location for mm. Southern Home County. So I was I was aged 24, 25, running a, a, a an office. I think everybody working for me was older than me. It was pretty daunting. What um, did you, do you think that that allowed you to do that? What was a desire or skill, or what was it about you that enjoyed and moved into that and relished that opportunity? Sure, I just really found my groove. I, I love what I was doing, and I and I. Obviously, I, th I think I, I guess I come across as a, as a natural kind of leader. So um, they were desperate to grow and, and they were putting a lot of people into roles that they probably weren't ready for. But they, you know, you either sunk or swam and I swam. So um, I, I was great. I very much enjoyed my time. But maybe this is the next question. You know, it was all very well joining that business at that time. But I was definitely after the influx of people that were going to really benefit from it from a kind of capital value perspective so i had it did take six or seven years for this to kick off but i then had kind of entrepreneurial uh itchy feet and i wanted yeah. to do something um for myself because the the model was something that we could take elsewhere you know the business that i then got involved with and i'll tell you about that in a second we were very much a head-on competitor for the Michael Page accounting and finance business in the southeast of England to start with. The MWA, is it? MWA. So my boss um, at Michael Page was a guy called Peter Ward. He was um, 11, 12 years older than I was. Very inspirational. Had joined 
Michael Page as a seasoned qualified accountant, but wanted to run his own business. And he was the guy put in charge of running the St. Albans office. And then he left um, to form his own company. He tried to persuade me to join him early on. And I pushed back, frankly, because I was having a lot of fun. Um, I was in my mid late twenties now in London, it was good. Um, but eventually I did join. Uh, and, and in the meantime, he'd been joined by another couple of uh, ex Michael Page people, a guy called Tony Martin, a guy called John Anderson, hence the name. Mm-hmm. And so I came along eight, nine years into that, seven years into that business's gestation. Right. And I was very much brought in for, for two reasons. One is I made a, quite a big, um, got a lot of experience within the temp marketplace as it was at the time and in London, whereas the my partners were all very much kind of Surrey. Um, so I was Mr. London. I mortgaged my home and bought into the business. That was a pretty scary time because my wow. daughter was being born at the time. So I so wasn't what, interested. In- what, yeah, what was your life like at that point? Age and community? I was 20, 28, 29, 29, I think I was. Um, well, my Michael Page life was fantastic. You know, being paid too much money, yeah, yeah, yeah. a lot of responsibility, BMW on the drive. Um, Did you own your own house at that point? I, well, I, I was onto my onto my third house actually. Wow. I, I bought a flat, then another house, and I'd moved uh, to Surrey as part of the Leatherhead thing. Um, my wife was pregnant with what's that was our, with our first child. You, so you were already married at that point. I was already married. Um, it was a lot for twenty nine. A lot for twenty nine year olds, especially in London. Like nowadays, twenty nine year olds are like just still living at home though. <laughs> <laughs> well I, I do make that comparison you're right to make that comparison um but in a way that might have been my motivator actually sean because it was all a bit cushy it was uh it was it was i would i'd done well and lots of things are slotted into place but obviously from a say from a michael page perspective i should have just been destined to spend as some of my friends did you know 25 plus years in that organization but i, I wanted to test myself in a different way now I look. I thought very hard about setting my own business up, um, and talked to close colleagues about doing that as well. But then um, Peter and I did this deal, which was a good deal for everybody, really, because I could hit the ground running. I'd been lucky enough. When you kind of think about it, what's going on now? I've been lucky enough to build up quite a bit of equity in my house, which I then used to to invest in this business. Uh, got into business with so there was four of us. I was a smaller shareholder, but I was still a significant shareholder. Um, and I just hit hit the London ground and we we opened up an office very quickly in uh, in Neil's yard in Covent Garden. Um, and then very quickly after that, I had a very fortunate moment where I I didn't realize it, but one of my friends from school was a, one of the kind of West End London office agents. Um, and we'd met and I was kind of asking him about different office spaces in London because we needed to grow. And he gave me the nod on a space on the Strand next to the Savoy Hotel. Yeah, space. We were my second office in London was Northumberland Avenue was the first one. At yeah, the, the second one was at the Strand, right, just past the Savoy. Yeah, well, I've been on exactly the same patch because yeah, we yeah. then went to Northumberland Avenue. Right, um, and we took over this six thousand square foot office, costing us, I think it was like fifty pounds a square foot. I mean, we took a massive risk at the time. We're just before um, the bridge on the right. Uh, exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, and we opened up this office. I think I had a, like, we, by then we got like 10 people. Was the Wellington pub over the road at that point? 
Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you spent, we spent a lot of nights in the Wellington. Well, there were, there were three pubs. The Wellington didn't go there very much. The Tup, the Savoy yeah, Tup, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and the Coal Hall, yeah, both yeah. of which are uh, still going here. Yeah? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I took 10 people onto, onto an office floor that felt like a bigger than a football pitch. Yeah. And there was only one way forward, which was to to fill it, basically. Yeah. Um, so very adrenaline pumping time. But we did it. And very quickly, we had 50, 60 staff in in uh, in London. Um, and we were taking we were quite direct in what we were doing. We were taking on this real uh, hold of the marketplace that Michael Page and Robert Walters had. Our shop window was the Financial Times print newspaper on a Thursday. Um, I'm really proud of that time because we did a very good job of doing a great providing a great service and differentiating ourselves. Kind of what I've taken forward to what we're doing now, um, and the business flew. And at the same time, the other guys were getting on with opening other offices up around. So we had, we then had St Albans, uh, Guildford, Windsor, Southampton, and so on. So we were we were building a great business. Did build a great business. Yeah, amazing. And what? When, it, when you're going through those early stages and you're in an office and you you know you, 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 your house is on the line and you know you, you've got a young family at home because it, even though it's you know it's a different time I'd say a lot of the people listening to the show are probably very in that period now like there's so many literally this morning I got a message of someone who's started their business four months ago and he's you know he's, he's, he's just had a kid and he's got a young family and he's put it all on the line and he's four months in and he's enjoying it and how did you mentally m manage that? If you can go back to that time, I know it might be tricky, but how do you how do you manage well, to grow a business so successfully, but also not drop the ball at home and and stay? Because we didn't talk about mental health back then. There's none of this. Yeah. Shit. No, there's none of that. So how did you cope with all those pressures at that well, time? Well, should we invite my wife into the meeting? She, she <laughs> might give a better answer. The um, I, I do have a part partly an answer for that is that had. Had I done this before my daughter arrived, I pro or sorry, had I done it after my daughter had arrived, I probably wouldn't have done it. Right. Because you, you, your inference is there that you've suddenly got these responsibilities and what are you doing? You know, I cut my income in half. I gave the car keys back. Didn't Things didn't, because we'd come through a, a rocky period of interest rates, similarly how to what's going on right now. Um, but it settled down and it was affordable. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I then, joking apart, my wife would say that actually for a long time, she might have felt like a single parent. Mm. Because I remember things like uh, being in an office and we didn't have an IT manager and I understood enough and I'd, I'd, the work would be done and then I'd spend the evening crawling around on the floor plugging computers in. Um, and I might not get home till half past nine at night. Yeah, And I'd be stressed. So she'd, she'd say to me, would you just drive into the house quietly because I turn up revving the engine, chuck it into reverse, turn it around for the next day and wake the kids up. So that, so it wasn't great. Um, but Sean, I'm, it, that was me. I, I would not have been happy being in a much larger organization, you know, thousand people where obviously I wouldn't have been running it and I'd have been putting up with inevitable office politics and different things going on around me, which I think I realized was kicking in at Michael Page when I was 27, 28, which is why I knew I needed to leave. Yeah. Must have took, like I say, it must have took a lot of resilience from your wife, though, to, to, to keep. Well, I do give her credit, joking apart. Yeah. 
because and you must have, but you must have painted a vision as well as to why you're doing it like without we, the communication it, i can't see that lasting in most instances yeah i think and you're right to infer that it's different today i i think she knew that i was really enjoying it you know because you, you're kind of opening doors up the whole time and doing things from scratch and beating the competition and hiring some great people and so and i might be you know really quite enthusiastic about the way I kind of present that so and and already I mean I did I did take I seem to remember my income did go backwards for a while but I've never paid myself a huge amount of money but you know once once we kind of settled into what it was that we were doing we were we were rewarding ourselves appropriately so there were other trappings coming with that yeah. you know, a nice house and holidays and stuff like that so I can see though I mean tiny relate relatable situation but yeah yesterday for example I was so I'm, someone joked the other day at the expo and said, if they count in which minute of this podcast I mentioned my wedding, but anyway, I'm going to mention <laughs> I get married in two and a half weeks, right? So, and I'm, I've been saying for months, I'm going to really, you know, get myself into shape for this wedding. And now I've, I've run out of time and I'm not in bad shape, but I'm not where I wanted to be. Anyway, I've got a personal trainer. So I'm up at 6am and I'm in the gym at six. It's only down the road from my house. So yesterday morning, I was up at six and then did an hour with the PT. Then my friend met me at the gym. And we did a 30 minute run together. And then I went home, saw the kids, let them, they all went to work and school. And then I, I worked all day here, but then I had calls up until 9 p.m. So I went into my little office in town at four and I got back about 9.30. But because of these, we'd actually been doing a lot during the calls in the afternoon, evening, we'd been making little tweaks and changes and stuff to the program and the product and the things we're working on. So I don't know if you get like this, but by the time I got home, my brain was actually more wired than it had been all day. Yeah. So I'm like, because I'm full of ideas, I'm full of, and like, the reason I'm telling you this is because the way you just said, I think you're, you could see you enjoyed it. I think that was actually something that I, I felt last night. It was like, I came in and my fiance was looking at me like, you know, it's late this. It's, it's rare when you work from home to come in at 9.30. But my reaction of like how positive I was and the question, the things I was sharing kind of quickly disarmed the situation, I think. And I'll feel, we'll obviously fill some gaps in in a second, but. I don't actually don't think I don't for mention this to you before, Sean. I don't think I've, I mean, I've enjoyed my professional life or role as much as I'm enjoying it now. So that what was happening then in my late twenties, early thirties is happening twenty plus years later. So, and I, you know, I feel incredibly grateful for that because obviously I'm I'm aware of in society or maybe amongst my friends people that are in jobs that they have to be doing at the age of fifty, fifty five because that's what they do and they need to work till they're 60 to earn their pension but really things are not going to change for them they, they, those are where you start thinking about and you've already touched on mental health that's when you start thinking about the serious side of kind of midlife crises for people that are not being fulfilled or having a sense of purpose and you know i i could stop tomorrow but i don't want to so it's 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 very it's, it's a great place to find yourself yeah amazing i love that what when it comes to you, the journey, then is it MWA? Yeah. I've read the headlines. You know, you, you is it you sold to Randstad? Um, so we were we were in it for building a great business and for competing with uh, you know two brands that we thought had got too much of the market share, which was Michael Pedro and Walters. But we were also doing it from an investment perspective as well. Um, we tried to do a well. I was to lead a, a, a private equity deal to allow the other three guys who were all. 10 plus years older than me to exit in, I think it was 2002 or three, but it was a time that was probably not dissimilar to how we are today in terms of a bit of economic turbulence. So that didn't happen. 
And about three years later, we were approached by, um, I mean, I knew the name, but we were approached by this business called Randstad that was running yeah. a, obviously a huge Dutch staffing company, but they had a, a very limited presence in the UK. They were a kind of blue collar staffing business based out of Newbury. And they were on a mission to enter the professional staffing world. Um, and obviously the businesses that I've mentioned might've been targets for them, but they're probably too large. And they identified in us, uh, it was a kind of, it, they called it the kind of Anglo-Saxon model that they wanted. We obviously had a great presence in the media at the time. Mm. Uh, and they acquired us, a very amicable process uh, and took, about six months and we we did a deal with them and it allowed the other three guys to to leave uh, i was uh, running it as the chief exec and yeah i, I en ended up spending three years there i had to spend two years with them as part of the deal to integrate the business but in the meantime they also acquired a group of businesses under the umbrella of Vedial, which was a, a host of uh professional recruitment companies globally they had probably a 50 percent stake in and the the uh, founders had the other 50%. Yeah, so there yeah. were businesses like Digby Morgan, which is a is, is a HR brand that, that were very similar to MWA, Jocelyn Rowe, which we ended up doing some work with. Um, and so I suddenly became one of, I think it was 20 MDs of different brands of businesses that had acquired. So I'd like to think that the experience of MWA gave them confidence to move forward. And they then had a, a whole stable of uh, professional recruitment businesses. Oh, so well, I, how, I, what was this thing? The size and scale of MWA when they bought when they yeah I think when they bought us I think we were about 160 staff um, I think our turnover was about 40 million but our gross profit on that was about 14 um, and we had six or seven locations but which I mentioned before but what they wanted to do was to just expand that business overnight so I actually stepped away from the the day to day running the business and fulfilled uh, the brief of just expanding rapidly geographically so I was going back to my family life for sure. And I was then in Birmingham, Leeds, Manchester, Edinburgh, um, Amsterdam and Rotterdam, just creating these new businesses, which, you know, as you probably picked up, that's a, a very enjoyable part of the job. So, yeah. But how, again, what was that another challenging period for the family? If you're probably, and what age was your daughter at that point? You know, I had, had two daughters by then. Um, yeah, good question. Uh, probably 10 and 13, something like right. that. Yeah. And I've got a nine and seven year old in the house now. So I, I mean, they ask a lot of questions. They want to know where you are. Like, how did you cope with that, that phase? Was that a different, different Richard? Yeah. Well, there's another story, which is when, when I left MWA and I was doing nothing for a year, they, they were more bothered by that, frankly, because <laughs> one of them bought a, a form back from school and it was, I don't know, it was some permission slip or something. And, and for some reason I had to put my name and my occupation and I didn't know what to write down and that, and that bothered them and it bothered me. Um, yeah. Which is partly why I got involved with Aiken, but we'll get on to that. Um, yeah. uh, it's hard to remember. I mean, uh, it's, it's a, you're asking some deep questions here, Sean, because I was just living the dream of growing businesses and, and being able to sell them and all the rest of it. And I had a great family behind me and, and all the rest of it, but they were thriving, have, have done very well. Um, but there, there would have been times when I wasn't around. Yeah. I always ask this stuff because I'm just fascinated, personally fascinated by it. You know, I think. Um, one of the, one of the ambitions I've got is to maintain my family whilst growing the business. And I think it's, uh, something I'm really conscious about, which 
you know, I just want to know from other people if they've got it right, they're open about getting it wrong. And I think I think it always always interests others when they're listening as well, because we can relate to it. Everyone can relate to this stuff. Um, interestingly as well, another connection, we've got a lot of mutual connections in different ways. I, I started my career at Randstad, right? Well, yeah. So, and, and it's funny because I joined Melbourne, the... I've joined the business and it was a it was just a complete mishmash of companies that have been acquired over the last few years. That, so that was, that was part of the video thing I talked about. Yeah. Because there, yeah, was, a, there was a business called Link, if I recall. There were yeah. uh, is it was there a select brand down there? Well, um, yeah, yeah. yeah. Hill McGlynn, is it Hill McGlynn? Hill McGlynn, which is now Rastag property. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. All of them we were all in this building with different CRMs and different payment structures. Right. And everyone had different commission structures. It was it was bonkers, but um I, I kind of look at, I'm a big Man City fan, right? And I look at like the, like the Man City of football. We've football. all got our weaknesses, Sean. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But they're, they're like the Man City of, of recruitment. They just went out and bought, they got what they wanted through cash, right? They just acquired and acquired and acquired. Um, very, 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 very well organized organization. Very regimented in their approach. Yeah. Built up some huge reserves and then went for what they wanted to get. For me, when, they, and I always knew this was going to happen, but for me, when everything, and I needed to do this, started to be rebranded. So whatever brand you work for in in Melbourne had been, a, as you say, a, a, a joining together of other businesses. That was yeah. the time to exit stage left because, um, you know, I didn't, I, my, my career then wasn't about being a divisional director of a, of a discipline within a huge multinational organization. But what I would say is that I was um, in my early 40s then, I suddenly found myself being tested far more than even the entrepreneurial bit had been because I had these these bosses in in Amsterdam that were frankly quite demanding, um, and they were putting me under pressure in a way that, having been my own boss for so long, I hadn't experienced, and I, and that was quite an invigorating process too. I, I, How did you I, do it? I, I look back. Well, I, I was. I remember being very frustrated, but actually, talk about grey matter. My grey matter was kind of turned back on full force then, um, which I think has also been a great thing for the the subsequent ten years as well. So. I probably resisted it because, hang on a second, no one's told me what to do for a while. Now you are. Um, what were they asking? What was the challenge? Well, just it was like, you know, all the people that you interview, we know what our businesses are doing. We've got a gut feel as to why things maybe are working or not working, but we might not be able to articulate it as well as somebody needs to hear it, right? So if there was a number that didn't look right on the on the PL, I had to explain what that was all about. Now, that's the right question to be asked. Um, my gut feel told me that it was going to sort itself out. Things had happened, but some of those things weren't particularly robust answers. Um, uh, and we used to have to run a traffic light system of things that were good, things that were kind of on amber, and things that were not good, that were red. And what are you doing about each one of those things? So all good discipline, don't get me wrong, um, but stuff that I hadn't been used to used to dealing with. Yeah. I bet. I bet I even imagine that now. You know, I've been running my business for only six years, and the thought of someone saying like, "What are you like giving me ultimatums and challenging me in different ways?" I think I'd be positive in so many ways, but I'm not sure I'd be ready. Yeah, well, and if you're chasing a passion thing that just isn't commercial, then someone needs to tell you that. But there are other things in there that you 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 know need to be given more time. So somebody might have a a much shorter term or outlook on a on a investment decision than I would have had. Um, yeah. Were you ultimately able to? make that final say and say look you know give me the time be able to well let's not overrate this time i think for the first year i was there for i think just under three years or just yeah. three years 
in that in that situation. So for the first year, to their credit, they left me completely alone. They wanted to learn about um, what this what they would call professional recruitment was all about. And so we were we were like um, everybody wanted to come and see us. So we had all these people coming and just sitting in our business and, and all, coming to London from typically from Amsterdam. Um, the second year, we kind of got involved in this very ordeal, which I talked about. And then the third year, it would have become too corporate for me. Um, yeah. And so to your point, probably no. It, at that point, I was suddenly probably thinking I was losing a bit of control. Um, so things were being, I was being told to do certain things that I that I probably didn't agree with that maybe um, I didn't have any say over. That's crazy. Yeah, so how did me. that, how did that, how did your situation uh, finish with those guys? How did you do well, that? I think, I think it, it was very well signposted that I would leave when the when what we call the rebranding happened. And what had happened was that um, we decided to merge three businesses to create what was called Randstad Finance and Accounting. Yeah. And the other, one was very small, but the other one was a business called Jocelyn Rowe, which was a, a banking recruitment business. And we, um, MWA was very much focused on the commerce and industry marketplace. This is actually quite a logical call because we were bolting in a, a much bigger presence within the financial services sector, particularly the city. So we joined those two businesses together and they, the Jocelyn Rowe has been run by Tara Ricks, who a lot of people will know. Um, and I was more than happy for her to take the helm on, on the whole business. And I was just exiting stage left. That was my, it was a 15 year journey from 94 to 2009. And I was very happy to leave them to it. So. And did you make, would you say, did you make life changing money in that process of the, the sale and everything? Was it, was it, were you able to walk away if you'd like and, and not? work at the level that you've continued. well that, that's a very relative statement sean because what's good enough for one person may not be enough for another um the the simple answer i don't talk about it much but the simple answer is yeah i could have done um and and that that does actually then talk to the next point because i'm i'm 45 years old it's 2009 2010 um and i've just exited what's been a huge chunk of my professional life with, by the way, the, the price paid by family along the way that we've talked about, right? Yeah, so yeah. what do I want to do now? Have I, have I done, am I done with recruitment? Um, I actively thought I was, by the way. Um, we went away as a family to uh, Australia, New Zealand for I think about six weeks. And that was, that was very much a kind of threshold event for me from the past to whatever the future yeah, might be. And I remember coming back, it was, uh, we landed when it was, um, thick snow early january and you can imagine what i left behind so uh, <laughs> i then had about three months of really enjoying doing absolutely nothing apart from taking my kids to school and just kind of pottering about um but then i started to feel things weren't quite right and i actually mean that once again i wouldn't say it was mental health but my physical health i think was being slightly challenged i, I didn't feel quite right about something and to the extent actually, I remember going to the doctor and said, he said, well, what's happened is that you've, you've kind of had this crash landing from, from your working life for, for all sorts of reasons, responsibility, celebration, whatever it might be. Yeah, uh, and you're missing that your body hasn't adjusted. Um, and I, I told you about the form that my kid brought back. So my, my daughter brought back and um, that bothered me hugely because I, I'm, I'm in my mid forties and I'm not actually delivering any kind of economic output anymore. I, to your question, 
the money wasn't the issue, but the the purpose was the issue. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I got involved. Uh, a guy I didn't know, but I did get to know very well. Um, is a guy called Rob Walker, who's been running a business called BIE Interim for has just recently left, but he was um, involved in with Barclays uh, Venture Capital, trying to turn around a, a recruitment group. And I kind of rushed it a little bit, but got involved um, with him. That turned out to be about a kind of like an eighteen-month process. Taught me a few things about what I didn't really want to go back to. For example, you know, the accounting and finance business by then. You know, it wasn't it wasn't what I'd enjoyed ten years before. It had become far more commoditized. You you were hiring people who were not as well paid as relative as they had been before. So they were not necessarily doing as great a good a job as you'd enjoyed in terms of service that you've been able to offer. Yeah, because of because of things like the RPO model had grown up. The there were too many people taking a slice of the pie. Um, yeah. So that was a kind of you know I look back on that as a kind of a uh, almost like a an assignment that I put myself on. But then going back to my network from Michael Page, two very good friends of mine, we were talking about what it was that we wanted to do because one was a guy called Ian Nash who had been the, the group finance director of Michael Page and funnily enough, Robert Walters. And another guy was a guy called Gary Watson who had been um, an MD within Michael Page and subsequently he became uh, the chief executive of Investigo. And we were talking about different ideas. And um, Ian said to me, Ian was now, he was investing in different businesses. He'd said to me that he'd just invested in this business called Acre. Um, I wasn't aware of Acre. Mm -hmm. um, sustainability wasn't something that was either a huge headline at the time, but definitely something that I wasn't tuned into. Um, but obviously it was addressing whatever we mm -hmm. called the, the green economy at the time. And he just he just purchased a small stake in a business and he was working with the founder um a guy called andy cartland who you'll hear about a lot in the next five minutes i think and uh he said that andy needed a, a running mate so we were did i know anybody in my network maybe xmwa you could join andy as a kind of number two so we thought about it nothing really came of anything but once once i had this word sustainability put in my head and i was trying to work out how i could carry on this in this world that I loved called recruitment, but not do anything in a in an established marketplace that had become commoditized. I suddenly got quite excited and in, in whether it's reinvigorated or invigorated, I don't know. And so I ended up meeting Andy and um we we hit it off. This is a this is a guy who was I think he was um eight years into his business. I think there were about 10 people in the company. He was frustrated by two things getting the right people to come to the company, but also what was going on in the uh, in what we would have called at the time the green economy? He, he didn't have anything to lose. I didn't have anything to lose, and we got together. Um, was he still operationally like billing and stuff? Was he that kind of? He, he was very much operationally billing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He had a, an office um, uh, just somewhere near Warren Street Tube. Um, he was he was very passionate about what it was that that Acre could become, but he he was just struggling to know how this was going to happen. I'm interrupting today's episode to bring you a message from our sponsor, Vincere. Vincere are the all-in-one recruitment platform for the most innovative recruitment agencies on the planet. And they've put together a free CRM buyer's guide for you to read because so many recruitment leaders are looking to upgrade CRMs, but before you sign the contract, be sure to read the terms at least twice. There's so many common traps that you need to watch out for. So not understanding the pricing model is one that always comes up. 
discounts limited to only the first year of a contract length is something that companies will throw. What are monthly contracts all about? Could this mean flexibility for the vendor to raise the price in the future? And how is your data hosted? Where is it? Is it anything outside your country? And could it mean compliance and legal issues for you down the line? So you will see the web address to get that right next to this episode, wherever you're watching this episode, whether it's on LinkedIn, with Apple, Spotify, YouTube, just look below, you'll see the link, click the link and get that free guide. You will not regret learning all of these hacks before making your decision and locking yourself into a new contract with a new supplier. You get a lot of people like that, that they, they need a, they almost need a second person with them. I meet them all the time. They're brilliant billers, they're visionaries and they see, but they, they don't get beyond 10 people. Yeah. He'd gone into business with his, with a partner, um, who had, had gone off in a different direction down building um, websites and they'd done actually quite well, but so that had left Andy on his own. He'd also had a, a very strong uh, right-hand person who was on maternity leave at the time, a lady called Beth Mitchell. And she, mm. So she'd stepped out of the business too. So he's probably feeling a little bit lonely. Um, yeah. And and I'm now, you know, through some non-exec work, I see these people that have built businesses on their own. They, they have it much tougher. Yeah. Um, it, it's a lonely place. It's a bit of a cliche for chief executives generally, but it's lonely building a company on your own. Yeah. Um, so for the second time in my life, Sean, I found myself doing something very entrepreneurial, but not having founded it. So uh, yeah. that's a kind of theme, I think. I don't know, don't know why that's the case. But so Andy and I got together and uh, we set about building a business that we wanted to be at the forefront of what we now would call sustainability. Um, What's the first thing you do in it, or you did in that situation? Walking in, 10 people, you know, what, 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 take us through that kind of high level roadmap of the things you implemented and changed to make the business move. Yeah, I, I can remember it quite clearly, actually. It was, um, so it was about a, a clear uh, business development strategy that we would need to stick to. So, you know, there's, there's little point doing some business in one marketplace where it's only going to give you one fee when you could be spending that time developing something that is a lot, is a longer term payback, but it's going to be much better for you down the road. So, you know, how are we organizing ourselves in terms of our client approach? Obvious things, um, but if it's being done in a, in a a way that lacks focus, then that might explain why something isn't growing. Um, I think the commission system at the time was wrong and was driving the wrong set of values. Um, I think some of the infrastructure was uh, needed to be invested in. I, th- I think um, I could have got this number wrong. And when Andy hears this, he'll check me on it. But I think we had something like £250,000 in the bank. And I think within six months, I'd spent it all. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Um, because we had to start thinking about things like invoice discounting probably sooner than uh, than I might have done. So there may well have been a, you know, with, as a small company, you're cautious to start spending what you yeah. what you've built up. So it was, but you know, I was coming in, I, I, bearing in mind, I'd been the young guy in my MWA. I was now almost exactly the same age gap, but on top of Andy, Andy's 12 years younger than I am. And we, we, he's a very good friend. We are, we are very close today and, um, but we didn't know each other at all beforehand. I trusted him. He knows his way around our marketplace very well from a a business development perspective. And I thought I knew how to grow a recruitment company. Um, And that's what, so it was, it was infrastructure business development focus and reward yeah what when you say reward and commission could you just give us a bit more info on that because i think that's a really important and i think right now going into a more difficult economic period you know 
people are, are evaluating the, the benefits of packages, the way that it, like, expectation of, of their people, you know, based on the fact that the last two years for a lot of businesses, it's been a really, really buoyant place. It's going to change. What, I guess, what was, what, would, what was wrong with the commission structure and what did you do to change it? I think, I think um, in, in order to, it was probably too generous. I can't remember all the detail, but the, in order to grow a company, you've got to be very careful. You're not being too soft and giving too much to your staff. And I hope that doesn't come across the wrong way. But you know, if you're paying out 60 or 70% of your net fee income to the individuals who are generating the revenue, you're never going to go anywhere because you, mm-hmm. you're, you're either going to lose money or you're going to spend not enough on your infrastructure in order to somehow make a profit out of that remaining 35% or so. So I think um, experience tells me this time and time again that businesses in our sector massively overcomplicate reward um, and what they sometimes end up with in reward. For example, if you have a, a system that has this tiered level of commission that kicks in above a certain level of performance, if you end up paying too much money out at that high, very high reward level, it screws the PL. So you might say we've grown this business to, I don't know, three or four million net fee income. But if two people are making all the money and they're getting paid out at too high a level, then you're not able to grow. So you need to be able to build a very strong foundation, make sure people, there are lots of people being rewarded in what I would consider to be an upper quartile fashion, um, but not not a system that is soft so that too few people are making too much money. Um, otherwise, it doesn't grow. Yeah. Right. Okay. So you made those changes and, and what impact did you see? You spent all that 250, which is a, I'm sure he was, I'm sure, was it Andy, did you say? He was, was yeah, Andy, yeah. yeah. A little bit uh getting a little bit worried at that point perhaps what have you <laughs> what, what happened next well i mean in a way i also became a little bit disillusioned with the subject of sustainability frankly that's another angle of, of discussion because the, the the profession was only just getting going so we, you know we were working with some pretty major retail brands that you know we could talk about easily about today who were creating jobs that i thought were common sense because it was about you know, turn the lights off. Now, not quite as simple as that, but but you're kind of with me on this journey, right? Yeah. Um, and therefore, it was it wasn't necessarily attracting people into it that were robust professionals. But things were changing. I mean, the the world was changing. Joking apart, climate change was getting to be a much bigger topic, and therefore companies were addressing this. We were very involved with an events business that was called. Green Monday and latterly became known as the crowd that was creating a community of of uh, sustainability professionals in London that we were kind of sitting at the heart of as a as a sponsor. And we were just trying to play our part in moving this subject on so that companies were doing some really radical things in order to address either the resources that they were overusing uh, or the way in which they were treating society. So, for example, you know, if you're dealing with a, a clothing manufacturer, a very significant role that they have is ethical trade. The clothes that we're wearing today are made in Bangladesh and we have to be, those companies now have a responsibility towards the farmers and so on and so forth. Um, there was a really big disaster in Bangladesh uh, called, uh, it, was, it was a collapse of a factory at a place called Rana Plaza, which was basically the home to, we could name a hundred brands that, that we own that were made in this location. And it was a massive wake up call for all of the companies that were dependent upon that place. And as a consequence, a, a thing called the Accord for Fire and Safety was introduced, which we were asked to place all of the senior 
execs into. So this was a, a business where they were hiring quarter of a million pound people to run a more sustainable manufacturing environment for the workers in Bangladesh. Now, as a consequence of that, all the brands that we've just we could talk about were, could see our work and they realized they had to take some of that expertise into their own organization. And when you think back over and that we've got we've all got this right, but there are certain events or maybe client wins that you know are a bit of a, a changing moment in in the in the fortunes of a an organization that was one of them because suddenly all of our work was on display to these a huge number of fantastic organizations and they came to us looking for chief sustainability officers or more ethical trade or human rights roles or whatever so that gave us a, a big uh, boost at the time wow yeah yeah so over the next well, you've been is, is it 10 years now it was 2012 wasn't it crazy so it was yeah and you know I, I think i did what we did a bit of a non-exec kind of relationship for a few months and then i i, I invested again um in acre uh in i think april 2012 yeah and you you've genuinely built like an, a, a super impressive business you've gone like say from 10 to over 100 people now across multiple was it one office at the time and now you said there's four well it's, 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 there are two halves of this story but, and i'm sorry to kind of mention covid but yeah, yeah. It, there's a pre-covid and there's a post-covid business so pre-covid i would say i was struggling to see how this business was going to achieve real scale um we had 30 35 people in london we had been doing quite a lot of work internationally so we decided that rather than attempt to grow 100 people in london we would follow our marketplace so we'd opened up in um in new york which is a big big decision for us a year before um and at the time pre-covid i think we had four people in that, in that office and then we'd also planned to open up in the netherlands in the january pre uh, the march so when covid happened so we we were definitely trying to find our way on another level but we're trying to find our way um as soon as covid uh, or the or the the real low point of that, that first six months. And I think of that between the April and the September of 2020, that in that final calendar quarter of the year, we could see things were starting to bounce back. And because the focus on such a, a, a crisis through, because of the pandemic had kind of got people thinking, I think that then elevated everyone's uh, thoughts and attention to climate change. So we have seen a dramatic change in our business since, um, uh pretty much since october 2020 so i think I mean, it I mean in terms of business new businesses popping up roles or people wanting to enter the industry what's been the biggest change uh when you say enter the industry they want to work for us because we, we promote how um you can become a, a great recruitment consultant and deliver great impact so you can you can change things through the job that you're doing i think organizations have all now massively stepped up their approach to climate change i've given you some examples earlier on but there are some really really great jobs going on out there at the moment that help organizations transform their business model um yeah i mean the world the world of work has most definitely woken up to what it is that sustainability is all about it used to be i think people thought this is more a, a culture than a function you know we need to make sure we're behaving ourselves and doing the right thing but actually it's much much more than that so we've We've built up our had built up our reserves, and we've allowed ourselves to grow very quickly since that time. So, 
in the year that followed COVID. So we our financial year ends in September the 30th. So we've just had a year end. Um, September 30th, 21, we've grown by 130% over the prior year. Wow. And this year we've just closed growing at 57% over the 130%. So that tells that tells you something about what's going on in, in society, which is good news when it comes to things to do with climate change. Yeah, for sure. Now, how do you find how are you finding the economy right now? So we have all every sector seen a pretty good uh, increase over that period, you would you would say, well, not every yeah. sector, most that I deal with in the professional services markets have been promoting record month, record quarters for about a year and a half. But I think, I think there's, a, there's two reasons for that, if I can interrupt you. I think I think what COVID did, like a recession, is those businesses that were not being run very well may have gone to the wall. And, and, and if I can say, that's not a bad thing. So therefore, the businesses that were stronger uh, have now been able to grow more quickly subsequently, maybe because they some of their competitors are no longer around. So that's definitely been the case. You're right, any, you're right, any decent, Decent, well-run recruitment company has done probably very well in the last 18 months. Mm. So what are you seeing at the, at the helm of this business now? What are the, what's the reality of, of the, the key performance indicators you're tracking right now? Is, is anything changing due to the, what's going on economically? Uh, nothing significant. I've just, I've just had a, uh, I, I am, I have to be concerned. I'll be naive not to be concerned. So we've just set our financial plan for the, the coming year. Our headcount growth has been dramatic over the last six months, and I have slowed that down in the plan. But if we can hit our levels of productivity that we have been achieving, then I will allow the business to continue to grow. But I don't want to set up a whole bunch of costs before we can see that happening. As of today, I can give you very, very few examples of any weakening in our what I would, the KPIs that I measure very closely are our job flow. So, you know, how many new roles are we? taking on on a weekly basis i'm looking at it on a weekly basis um you know what's our fill rate you know are, is anything softening in terms of clients taking longer uh, no uh, are there any sectors that seem to be struggling more than others there are one or two you know we we um, have a very successful business which we call sustainable finance which is all to do with impact investing and that's grown for us over the last five or six years and i think if you're an asset manager involved with supporting listed companies those publicly listed companies may well be being quite cautious right now but by the same token if if you're uh if for whatever reason you have cash then you're one you're enjoying the interest rates and you're and you're wanting to make investments and that's so we're i think we might be losing somewhere but we're gaining somewhere else in in commerce it's just it's gone crazy and then there's there's a high degree of our work now sean is coming from very small, innovative startup businesses that are bringing new technologies to the sustainable world. So that's going crazy. I've also got the benefit now of not just having a European centric business. So we have 20 of our colleagues or 20 of our consultants are based in New York. Now, you know, the New York economy is in a different place to where we are. I'm not saying it's not going to get affected, but there's some things that um, Biden is doing, which are very much promoting the subject around renewable energy, Obviously, so that's that's helping. And a few weeks ago, which is where Andy is right now, because he's setting it up with um, with another colleague, a guy called Paddy. We are creating a business out of Singapore, and that's exceeding our expectations. So, if I've got concerns, it would be European, perhaps specifically the UK. Um, but I'm not seeing anything like that yet. Right. 
yeah I've, 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 I, on the whole i'm hearing the same um i had uh last week i interviewed laurie boyle from mcgregor boyle and he was a, yeah. bit more, a little bit more uh pessimistic shall we say about the impact that he thinks will happen in the next couple of years it'll be a hell of a lot harder than people are predicting and it's going to hit a lot quicker than people are predicting just just looking at the bank of england interest rates and the way that it's affecting finance um i think it's important that we, we talk about where we are now and, yeah. and i appreciate you giving us the honest view of, of where well, you're at the honest view is i can't say anything today but i can also tell you that i've adjusted our budget because i am i have to be concerned um i think there's something else here which is that sustainability places us in a bubble because yeah. as we talk about we people within acre which is why by the way i enjoy it so much we've really really adopted this sense of purpose i i'm not coming at this as a an environmental activist but i but i get it right so to be without being too corny the arctic circle is not going to stop melting because interest rates have gone up yeah. so we can't stop addressing that issue just because the economy is, is not in a great shape now companies have to respond to the general economy and maybe cut back on other hires but they need to be addressing sustainability so does that place us in a, a bubble that gives us some protection i don't know let's talk again in six months time sean i'll, I'll tell you all well, i hope so if, if it yeah. means the world is it i mean well, you, exactly yeah. you watch the david attenborough documentaries and things you, yeah what's yeah. your i mean obviously you're not a, you know an expert in, in in any of this area by trade but you must discuss it and be privy to conversation daily about the different things companies are doing what's your honest opinion as to you know the impact uh, the, the world is going to have will have on positively can have on on what's happening from a from a climate change perspective um and it, by the way the answer to that is not just climate change so so i think um the way in which businesses are managing their use of resources that are threatened now is it's just becoming more and more and more enhanced all of the time. Um, and also going back to our sustainable finance business, what that's about is stopping money being invested in, in uh, activities that are not particularly helpful, defense, tobacco, whatever it might be. Mm. So there's a lot of money shifting away from things that are damaging um, to uh, activities that are either technology, very from a technology perspective, very innovative and helping us get to become a better or better a better society or better economy so that's there are lots of things happening there but about half a lot of people get surprised by this about half of the roles that we fill sean are not addressing climate change but they're addressing societal issues so this is very much part of the same agenda so how is how are we all interacting with one another how are we making sure that diversity equity and inclusion is being driven properly and embedded in our in our companies they how are those people in the cotton farm in Bangladesh being protected? Are there any 12 year olds been involved in making that jacket, the jacket that we're wearing? Mm -hmm. So I think there are things that are going on right now that are definitely changing for the better. But it's it's not just to do with what, with respect to David Attenborough and the frozen plates, not just to do with that. It's to do with society as well. Yeah. Well, that is the piece that will kill us in imminently if it doesn't get sold right the the climate change side if but, look, yeah but it, but it but if at the same time you know society is just you know there's some things that you and i grew up with that just just are abhorrent when you think back as to what how they were how they were allowed to continue and that that leads to all sorts of other implications in terms of how the world deals with climate change right so um i'm, I'm very proud that we are 
or we find ourselves addressing societal issues as much as we do climate change. Yeah, yeah. for sure. So yeah. moving forward then, if we just take a, a view into the future as to what you see, obviously you might, you might have been a bit more cautious with your planning and your budgets for the, the foreseeable, but there's a reason you're enjoying it so much. The reason you're, you're still, you know, you said you, you know, you're working, you don't need to, but you're there. Where do you want to take this business? What's the ultimate goal that you're trying to drive for Acre? Well, we find ourselves and we've, we find ourselves at the center of this process. We are, we are definitely the global leader. So we have an opportunity to create what we would call systemic change. So we, we need to work with the client, obviously the candidate as well, in helping them address the sustainability agenda. So I want, I have a passion and it's our purpose within Acre for us to basically fulfill as much as we can in order to accelerate the agenda. Now that you don't get that passion when you're running an accounting and finance recruitment company. This, it, this isn't that same connection with what it is that's going on in the world. Mm. So I want, I want, I want to be involved with Acre as long as I possibly can do using, using we we believe now because we've had a lot of success in um, the USA and Amsterdam and hopefully in Singapore that it is kind of dependent, despite technology suggesting it's not necessary for us to have a a global footprint. So I want to use uh, an ever increasing global footprint to really accelerate the way in which we can help companies address this. Um, yeah, and I want to build value. The, the, the other confusion that seemed to focus around Acre in the past is that if you're addressing environmental issues or climate change, that doesn't necessarily relate to creating economic value as well. So I want to create a valuable organization. We are creating a a valuable yeah, organization a charity at the end of the day you're a, sorry you're not a charity you're a commercial you're not a charity but some people disconnect that you know yeah. we they think that you know okay you come to acre maybe maybe you can generate i don't know hundred thousand pounds a year in fee income and not earn very much money but you're solving uh the planet's problems and that's not the case quite the opposite i think people make if we're talking about sheer revenue people make more revenue in acre than any other business that I can you mentioned imagine. that before like the productivity per head in your business is, is particularly high right yeah what are we talking what's the what's the level so but the, the point there is which I mentioned before is that we um there's a, there's always going to be a, a scarcity of consultants good consultants right so we talk about this so what what we try and do is to give the consultants that we've got every opportunity to to make more placements which means more revenue we've we have a, a significant marketing function that's giving all sorts of content material to help that process happen. We have a learning and development function that we call performance, which is seven or eight people as well that are creating lots of interventions just to help people get better at what they do. And we have a very large research function. Research isn't uh, a new thing, obviously, lots of companies have those. But between those, we, it enables us to leave the people that can actually do great business development work to go and do business development work and not to get bogged down in other management issues, which is sometimes, certainly in the past, it's been a fault of our industry that we promote the people that are best at getting business into people management roles, which is not what they enjoy, but we've, we've managed to move ourselves around that. So I think, um, I think probably pre COVID are, you know, there are different ways of managing productivity, Sean, and, and it kind of can be a bit, can get out, this kind of conversation could unravel, but I think, um, we're probably producing around about 130, 140,000 pounds per salesperson on average. Now we're producing 260. Wow. So, so that would be our productivity of salespeople. 
if you there's another measure which i see promoted in some of the recruitment magazines one in particular called the hot 100 where they take the total gross profit of a business and divide it into the um or divide the number of people in the whole company irrespective of function into the gross profit um and that's my bigger measure right now because i'm introducing different ways in which the bandwidth of a consultant can operate marketing research whatever i should expect a higher number but overall maybe i can compare it to, to a more traditional model so our, our productivity uh full-time employees into gross profit is about 170. and that when you when you look at that number it compares very favorably where with where the industry is so you know compares with one or two search companies yeah we, we're doing pretty well i i, yeah. I definitely think we are way above average and, and what i what i want to be able to tell consultants in london is that you know you might be doing pretty well but you're in a bit of a hamster wheel placing your accountants or your lawyers come come out of that hamster wheel come and work for us and you'll make more money and you'll be able to tell your friends that you're solving climate change and it's true so that is massive like you say if we go back to the very first thing we talked about when you left an accountancy role and became a recruiter yeah. and then you needed to get the golf gti to to prove you were <laughs> like it really is a big thing that people care about especially in 2022 they care about the yeah. they're having they care about the status of their position and you know you're not saying change roles you're saying just take just go and drive go and get in a different car or a different boat and go and join or, the, or frankly don't have a car at all but that's a different subject right yeah, so yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you've touched on a few times, but we, we take a lot of effort around the whole well-being and mental health agenda. Um, it, kind of enough said, really. We, we Everybody knows within Acre that we are very supportive. It's a very open conversation. Uh, if people have got issues, we, we look after them. We promote different activities that, that hopefully get in the way of some of those issues becoming real issues. Yeah. And it shows in you how how positive you are about the business and genuinely excited you are you can see it you can feel it it's uh it's great it's really because you don't need to be there like you really don't this it's uh it's very different than when you've got that 32 year old founder who's like grafting because they're on the way up and they've got to be they, they haven't got a choice right you, you you genuinely love it therefore you're there and you're and you're you know you're making change so richard i think it's brilliant i'm I, you know thank you so much for giving us your time today um thanks for persevering when we, we struggle with the technology we got yeah. there in the end. um and uh if anyone did want to reach out to you either to join acre or even just to get your take on a few things because there'll be a lot of founders who've listened to your words of wisdom and thought you know what this guy i know you do NED work across the market um are you open to people just reaching out to you on linkedin is that the best place i'm completely open to that for two reasons one is that in the spirit of sustainability things need to be open sourced right so the more that i can share what it is that we're doing and the success that we're having the better as far as i'm concerned but um yeah i'd love to talk to people so reach out via linkedin or it's not hard to get hold of me yeah brilliant and like we you know you said it yourself we'll get you on again in the future whether it be six or 12 months find out how you have progressed through this economic period and um see where the business is in the future and if you're still as excited about it as you are today be I, would, I would very much look forward to that sean because i think there's a you know, I've tried to play catch up for you here with our story, but I think there's some interesting chapters ahead of us as well. For sure. Richard, thank you so much. Cheers, Joel. Thank you. Thank you, as always, for listening to today's show. I truly, truly hope that you got value from it. That's the only reason I take time every week is to ensure that my audience, future and existing recruitment owners are learning from each other to make this industry that I love so much stronger. Today's episode was brought to you by Hoxo Media. 
I am the CEO and founder of Oxo Media, and we are the world's leading content marketing and personal branding agency for recruitment businesses specifically. So we are working with over 200 agencies and 2,000 recruiters right now, both managing the brands, producing content, building written video podcast content for niche recruitment agencies all over the world, as well as coaching at a desk level individual recruiters in your businesses how to be better on LinkedIn that's how to brand themselves that's how to produce content that's how to use the opportunity on LinkedIn to get traffic to their profiles and turn that into business we're coaching people all over the world every single day if any of that sounds of interest please do visit www.hoxomedia.com or drop me Sean Anderson a personal message on LinkedIn and would love to talk to you I'll see you soon